What a great year, amen? I feel a little cheated because I got in on just the last little part of 2016, uh, but excited about being here for all of 2017. I, I do love Bethel. I love this church. That's why we moved our family to Northwest Indiana, which, by the way, is beautiful, but very overcast, I'm finding out, right? I guess that's normal. Really, the main reason that we came to Northwest Indiana uh, was to follow the calling of God. Uh, we wanted to obey his calling, but also because Bethel is a great church that I believe God is using in great ways. But how do we measure greatness in the kingdom of God anyway? I have one idea for you here today. The kingdom formula is more of Christ and less of me. So real simple, more of Christ, less of me. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 20. You can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. If you'd like Matthew chapter 20. And as you're turning there, I'll, I'll tell you this. I believe we'll know that Bethel is a great church if Jesus is being seen more and more clearly and more and more people are passionate about him. That's how we'll know that Bethel is a great church. The objective is not that everyone in Northwest Indiana knows who Bethel is. The objective is that everyone in Northwest Indiana knows who Jesus is. That's why we exist as a church. Amen. Sometimes churches can get derailed from this mission. And so our prayer at Bethel is that he might increase and we might decrease. So I want to read with you Matthew chapter 20. You can follow along. We're going to read all the way from verses 17 through verse 28. And I want you to notice how Christ teaches us about greatness through humble service. So starting in verse 17 of Matthew 20, the context here is Jesus is traveling with his disciples on the road to Jerusalem, and they're headed towards the Passion Week. And I'm going to start reading here verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now we're in the middle of a mini-series on creating kingdom culture at home. So I'm going to give you another aspect of this. And I'm proposing to you a very simple equation. Not complicated, but pretty difficult to live out. Again, it's all uh, more of Christ, less of me. More of Christ, less of me. So first this morning, more of Christ. And so you hear it a lot around here, don't you? It's all about him. So why is that the resounding gong that we just keep hitting? Why do we keep saying that? 
Well, one reason is because all of Scripture points to Jesus Christ. As you go throughout the pages of this book, he's on every page. And in our text here this morning, it's all about Jesus, of course. I want you to notice verses 17 through 19 here. Jesus is predicting for the third time his suffering, his sacrifice, and his death. He's already told the disciples this is coming, but again, he predicts this. And there's this phrase, going up to Jerusalem. So they're on their way to Jerusalem. And this is really what everything has been leading up to. So everything in the Gospel of Matthew up to this point, and quite honestly, everything in the entirety of Scripture up to this point, is the rising action, right? And then here's the climax, the Passion Week, as Jesus gets ready to lay down his life. In verse 18, Jesus, his second word he says is important. He says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. We. See, the disciples are implicated in whatever happens with Jesus. And so they're in this together. What the disciples should be focused on right now is the words Jesus just said about his suffering. They should be meditating on who he is, preoccupied with him, but instead, they're too preoccupied with themselves. They're thinking about position and thinking about who's important. The disciples have a worldly perspective when they really need a kingdom perspective. And so does Mrs. Zebedee. You notice her, verse 20 and following? Mrs. Zebedee, now this is a good mom, right? Loves her kids. And she comes and she kneels before Jesus. Now what should be happening here is her heart should be reverently in awe of this king, right? I mean, she may not quite realize it, but she is kneeling before the one who made her, her creator. She's kneeling before God in human form. Fortunately, she's too preoccupied with her kids and with her family. When a kingdom, uh, when a home has a kingdom culture, Christ is the preoccupation of the home. Christ is the anthem. Christ is the center. The world revolves around Jesus. But when a home has a worldly culture, the world revolves around us, around me, or maybe around my kids. It's easy for this to happen though, isn't it? I mean, if you have, if you're married here or you have kids, you remember how your life radically changed the day you got married or the day that you had kids. It's like everything was different. Uh, there used to be this uh, commercial series years back, Johnson & Johnson, they put these out. And they were little video snap uh, shots of like, I remember one was a mom with a little infant baby boy. It was adorable. It was so cute. And then the tagline read, having a baby changes everything. Having a baby changes everything in the same way that having a marriage changes everything, getting married. You have to make room for another person. Your life changes. I remember um, this happening with my wife and I. For that really, really short period of time that we had before the kids came, very short, shorter than we'd like, but we love our kids, they're awesome. Um, I remember if we wanted to stay up till two in the morning, we did. And if we wanted to go to bed at eight o'clock at night, we did. And then once kids came, it was kind of like we were on their schedule, right? I remember having a really cool sporty coupe that I drove around. Jen would argue whether it was manly or not, but it was a, it was a sporty coupe and, uh, and I had to give that up when we had to put a car seat in the back, right? Having kids changes a lot of things. Getting married changes a lot of things. But you think about it, what sometimes happens is our world begins to shift and now all of a sudden we don't realize it, but our kids are the center of our world or our spouse is the center of our world. And we're too preoccupied with our family, not preoccupied enough with Christ. Simple truth is this, the world does not revolve around us or our kids. Colossians 1, 16 through 17 says this, for by him 
all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Romans 11, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. These are powerful scriptures. Jesus is the center of the universe, whether we realize it or not. One of the first steps you can take to create kingdom culture in your home is to relocate the nexus of your family from whatever it is, maybe it's you know, money or having your kids succeed or, or maybe it's just your kids themselves, to Christ. And I think of it like, you know, like Copernicus who discovered that indeed the universe actually revolved around the sun when you find that Jesus is actually the way, what the world and the universe revolves around, it is no less revolutionary in your home. Now, perhaps your struggle is not the, the mom's struggle here. Maybe family isn't an idol for you, but I would imagine that just about everyone here struggles with what James and John did. James and John are placing themselves on the throne, right? They want recognition. They want people to think great things of them. So do all the disciples, it seems. But we all love honor, we love recognition, we love titles. I got a chance to play in an all-night soccer tournament a couple years ago, Sarah Parvin tournament. And, you know, it was a, a, for cancer research, it was a good cause. I think I got a little distracted, though, because, you know, we played hard, we beat every team. It was all night long, by the way. It started 12 o'clock noon on a Saturday and went to 12 o'clock noon on a Sunday. Outside, under the lights, it was awesome. We played it like three in the morning. It was amazing. We won every game. They didn't keep brackets. No one had score, no trophies, nothing. The only people that knew that we won were us. That really bothered me. I was like, where's the brackets? Where's the fact that we are the champions, right? We like to be recognized. We like uh, when people know that we're great. Proverbs 29, 23 says this, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Like James and John, we sometimes forget that the path to greatness in the kingdom is very different from the rest of the world. To be first, you must be last. To be great, you must be a slave and a servant, Jesus says. To wear a crown, you must bear a cross. I believe that God is teaching us something even with the way that Matthew 20 is constructed. If you look at this chapter of scripture, you have this request of James and John and their mother, and it's sandwiched between two little passages on the crucifixion, verses 17 through 19 that we just read, and then, of course, Jesus' words in verse 28 about the Son of Man coming to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then throughout the text, Jesus is saying, can you drink the cup? You know, when he says cup, he's referring to the suffering that he's about to endure. So what, what are we supposed to learn here? The point, the path to greatness goes through the cross. The path to greatness has to go through the cross. Jesus is a human far greater than any other, and yet he serves more humbly than any other. And in just a few short days, I want you to remember, Jesus is going to wash the disciples' feet. I was contemplating that, that this week, and I think that that story is so common to me, it's so um, I'm so used to it that I forgot how quite shocking that really is, that Jesus stoops and washes the disciples' feet. I was trying to think of a different way to illustrate this. I'm not going to wash any feet, don't worry. But 
I thought of the show Downton Abbey, which I kind of regret even telling you I watched, but I did have. In that show, it's this British aristocratic family, you know, very wealthy, and there's this division between the slaves and servants and the, you know, the, the household and the noblemen and noblewomen. And for those of you who've seen it, I, I'm just imagining, you know, Lord Grantham going down to the servants' quarters and washing the feet of Mr. Mosley, you know, or, or helping him get his coat on. Like, those people can't get their own coats on? It's kind of crazy, but Jesus lived as a servant. He literally was a servant. He lived as a servant, and he died as a servant. And in this text, the cross is this constant theme, right? It's all over the place, and yet the disciples and Mrs. Zebedee, they miss it. They don't see it. Had they been recognizing the worth of Jesus and, and what he was about ready to accomplish, they would have seen their ambition for what it really was, right? Misguided at best and blasphemous at worst. One of the best ways to create kingdom culture in our home is to meditate on the gospel of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and to do so as often as you can, to constantly be reviewing the gospel. Like the disciples, we all need to grow in our gospel awareness. These, these disciples are just forgetting about the most important thing. They're not very gospel aware, and sometimes it's the same way with us. Verse 28, I want you to notice that the phrase, Jesus came to give his life a ransom for many. This, is, this should be the focus of the disciples, and yet it's unfortunately not. I believe this phrase is a flashback to Isaiah 53. You can go home and read that beautiful text when it says that many were made righteous. It probably is to remind us of that passage. The truth is this. We're born into the world slaves of sin. We need a ransom. From the very moment we're in this universe, we choose to do our will instead of God's will. I chose to do what Mark wanted more than what Christ wanted me to do. And this bent towards sin, it, it destroys our families. It destroys our lives. I mean, isn't there a lot of brokenness today in families? It's because of sin. And the only way to be freed from this, the only way to see a family have a healthy kingdom culture is for somebody to pay the price for our sin, to ransom us, for us to receive salvation. And sadly, we can never pay that ransom. According to Psalm 49, we read that we cannot pay this ransom. Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. The ultimate act of service in the entire universe is the fact that Jesus Christ gave up his life and paid the ransom for you and I. That Jesus would pay the debt that I owe, would free me from slavery, and, and the, the bonds of sin would be, would be shattered. We just sang about that. That's the ultimate act of service that, ha, that there ever has been. And in our homes, this is the gospel that we need to be breathing. It needs to be the, the pain on our walls. It needs to be surrounding us. I mean, everything that we come back to needs to be the gospel, Jesus Christ. We need more of Christ. Amen. Something happens. I believe this happens when we meditate on the gospel. So when we meditate on the gospel of Jesus Christ and we focus on the cross, we begin to embrace the position that we have in Jesus Christ. So we realize we're forgiven, we're accepted, we're adopted, we're his children, right? Because we're in Christ, we no longer have to scramble for superiority. Because we're in Christ, we no longer have to claw for commendation. Because we're in Christ, we can live with scandalous humility. 
I think we're free to turn the world's orb chart upside down. You know, Jesus does things very differently than the way the world does things, right? I want you to notice from Philippians 2, it's a beautiful passage, and if you compare it with this passage, we, we, we see some similarities. So Philippians 2, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. You'll see it on the screen. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. This is Paul writing these words. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's a beautiful passage. But what we see here is when we pattern our mind after Christ, when we think like Jesus and we look at his sacrifice and we contemplate that, and this gospel is going through our minds, we start to pattern our sacrifice and our service after his. Philippians 2.3 says, we begin to count others more significant than ourselves, which brings us to our second point. Kingdom culture at home means less of me. So more of Christ and less of me. We've seen that only Jesus deserves to be the center of the universe. Nothing else should take that place. And we need him desperately. We need more of him. So as we make much of Christ, as we focus on the gospel, as we really meditate on that, he develops within us a humble heart we know what we're saved from. We know who we are in Christ. And then that leads to us serving others instead of ourselves. Now Christ, he really wanted his disciples to get this, so he uses two word pictures. And if you're like me, you like word pictures. It helps, you know, becomes vivid in your mind. And I don't know if we'll like these word pictures because they're pretty convicting, okay? But in verse 26, Jesus says that we are to be servants, a servant. Diakonos, it's where we get the word deacon. It literally means one who waits tables. I've only had one experience as a waiter at Bob's Big Boys in college. And uh, yeah, it's laughable. Uh, I was not a good waiter. I Multitasking, not so good. And uh, one of the things that's hardest about being a server or a waiter or a waitress is that the customer is always right. So you have to submit yourself to the customer. You have to make sure that even if they ordered something different, I probably thought of it wrong, but even if they did something different, they're right, yep. As a servant, as a server, you have to submit yourself and it's all about helping that other person. Now, the motivation for a server or a waitress or waiter is usually money. You want to get your paycheck, you don't want to get fired by pouring the coffee on top of the customer um, because they're rude. You want to get your paycheck, so you're, you kind of serve, put a smile on your face. But as a Christian, our motivation is to be more like Jesus. Because Jesus serves. Jesus came to serve. Verse 28, it says that Jesus came to serve. That's central to his entire purpose for coming, was to be a servant. Now, if Jesus would have stopped there, it would have been radical enough. But unfortunately, in verse 27, he goes on to tell us we need to be a slave. 
doulos, uh, a bondservant. And back in Philippians 2, when we read that, it, said, it actually said Jesus took the form of a doulos, a servant, a slave. Now, slavery has always had a negative connotation. I mean, today, maybe for different reasons than in the first century, but it's always been about, I have no rights, I have no choice, I do what somebody else tells me to do. At least with a job and a waiter, you can get out. With a slavery, you're, you can't. And this is a problem because we live in a world that fights for its rights, don't we? There's a real sense of entitlement in the world. And you can mark this down. Worldly culture in a home will, will have this uh, sense of entitlement. It will consist of entitlement, my rights. In this very chapter, Matthew 20, you could go back and you could survey the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, verses 1 through 16. I'm not going to take an opportunity to read that, but the gist is that there's a master of a house and he wants workers for his vineyard. So he goes out early in the morning and he collects a couple people who are just hanging out and he agrees with them that I'll pay you a day's wage if you come work in my vineyard. They agree, they go to work. He goes out a few hours later, he finds some more stragglers. He agrees to pay them a fair wage and they jump in, they work. And he does this throughout the day to the point where one hour left of the workday, he grabs some last minute people and says, will you work for me? I'll pay you what's fair. And they do. And then they all line up for their paychecks. And as they receive their paychecks, he starts with the ones who just came, the new hires. One hour they worked and he gives them an entire day's wage. So you know what the people who came early morning are thinking, right? Well, man, I'm gonna get more than a day's wage then. But unfortunately to them, Christ, uh, picture of Christ, the master of the house gives the same compensation to each one. And then, of course, they're furious. There's this sense of entitlement, kind of like the disciples who are saying, no, I want to be first. Like, I deserve more. And the truth of this parable is we don't deserve anything. Uh, just to be a laborer in the king's vineyard is grace. And to be given the compensation of the riches of salvation is grace upon grace. And yet oftentimes we look around and we think, I deserve more. I deserve more than that person. A couple of examples of entitlement in the home. It could be a father or a husband thinking, I'm entitled to respect. Or a mother or a wife saying, I'm entitled to having my emotional needs met. Or I'm entitled to a break every once in a while. Maybe it's a child saying, I'm entitled to an iPhone 7. That's the most ridiculous of them. But the point is this. We do want to respect, uh, women should respect their husbands Husbands should take care of their wife's emotional needs. But when we have the sense of entitlement, I must have this, it causes a problem for service. Here's the difference between entitlement and service. Entitlement says my needs must be met. And service says, how can I meet others' needs? Where can I meet others' needs? So I want to get real practical here because I believe Jesus is really practical. And as he speaks to the disciples in this text, he doesn't just teach abstract truths. He's getting ready to actually lay down his life and be a servant, be a doulos. So this is real stuff. This Jesus is talking in reality here. So let's talk about it in real life. A couple ways to apply servanthood in your family and be house servants. So my challenge to you is when you go home, whatever your family composition is, you talk to members of your family and you decide which of these areas needs most attention. Now you won't see these on the screen, but I'm going to Go over three, in-house, God's house, and outhouse. I know the last one's a little weird. We'll get there, okay? Uh, in-house, God's house, outhouse, okay. A good place to start even when you go home is serving the members of your own family. 
I think it's probably the toughest, but it's a good place to start. Moms and dads and grandparents, here's a way you can model this. Christ-like leadership. Christ-like leadership. Which each, with each of these, I'm going to point to Christ because in verse 28, we're to be like Christ. Don't lord authority over your children, verse 25. Your, your home should not look like the Roman Empire, right? Demanding things, barking out orders. Don't provoke your children to anger, Ephesians 6.4. Moms and dads and, and grandparents, a good way to show a servant's heart is to, is to be willing to apologize when you make a mistake. And you may say, well, I'm a, I'm a dad, I don't have to do that. Like, I'm a parent, that affords me the right that I don't have to say I'm sorry. And you know, in the world's uh, standards, maybe you're right, but according to Christ, it shall not be so among you, verse 26. We are called to a different standard than the rest of the world. Husbands, Christ-like sacrifice, sacrifice. Last week, Ephesians 5, we saw husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So you take that passage and you combine it with this text, and we're getting pretty convicting here, right? Are you willing to give up your life for your wife? I know some husbands that would probably be willing to give up their life but as far as living for their spouse and serving them, that's a little bit more difficult. We may be willing to take a bullet for our spouse, but would we take 10 minutes to do the dishes, right? If Jesus is willing to become a slave, then we also must forfeit our rights. We must show ways practically how we can serve our wives. I heard of a husband from this very congregation this past week. I'm not going to call them out because then they'll only get rewards in earth and not in heaven, okay? Okay. But they got on their hands and knees and they scrubbed their kitchen floor for their wife. But does a husband have to do that? Is that written in the husband code? No, but it certainly is a way to show your love for your spouse. Wives, Christ-like submission. I just say this to you, wives. Don't focus on your man. Focus on the son of man in verse 28. 28 says, even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Don't focus on your man. Focus on the son of man. It's so easy to focus on the failures of our spouse, isn't it? And us guys, we kind of make it easy sometimes, right? We're a pretty easy target to hit. But take your cues from Jesus. Though completely equal with God, in every way, in essence, he submitted himself to the Father. Philippians 2, we just read, and verse 23 of our text, the, the son even submits to the Father. And we're talking about complete equality here. So follow Jesus' example. Even though, wives, you're completely equal with your spouse, equal in every way, made in the image of God, beautiful, designed by God, it's, an, it's, it's a willing way to serve. A little sidebar disclaimer here, I wanna make sure I say this. There are times when a woman is facing abuse, and I believe that those are times for immediate help. I don't believe the way you serve your husband is continuing to subject yourself to abuse. I believe the best way you serve your husband is to get him and yourself help. Last week, Pastor Steve preached on marriage, and uh, I was thinking about this as I was studying this text. How many marriages would be saved if we would apply this principle of less of me? If we would say enough of entitlement? Could be a beautiful thing. Children, how many uh, children are in here? You can raise your hand if you're a child. I mean, all, almost all of us are children. If our parents are still living, uh, we're, we're children. But some of you, you know who I'm talking about, the younger children here. God wants for you Christ-like obedience. Christ-like obedience. Don't focus on fallible parents, sinful parents. Focus on the example of Jesus Christ. 
who gave his life for sinful people like you and I. I want to challenge you with this. Kids, you can serve sinful parents, and in doing that, you're serving your Savior. So think of it that way. Okay, if I serve my sinful parents, yes, they're sinful. Yes, they mess up. Yes, they frustrate you. They're never fair. But in serving your parents, you're actually serving your Savior. Siblings, if you have a sibling, there's a couple of mine in here. Christ-like kindness. Christ-like kindness. Philippians 2, 3, and 4, again, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And the world kind of tells you through the sitcoms and through the shows that, you know, you're going to probably hate your brothers and sisters, and the best you can hope for is just to kind of endure and put up with it, and then you'll be away from them. But Jesus says you're to become their slave and their servant. Now your sibling is saying, yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> but you yourself are supposed to, to actually initiate being a servant, to, to actually give up your rights and to serve your brother or sister. It's getting uncomfortable, isn't it? I mean, we're all hit with this everywhere we are. One last one. If you have aging parents, if your parents are getting older, I've been thinking about this. My parents are still very young, but uh, as they get older, how am I going to care for them? How am I going to love them well? Watched a documentary a little bit ago when caring for those with Alzheimer's and dementia. And what, what I really liked about it was it, it emphasized the dignity of life at every age. So as we care for our parents as they get older or care for your grandparents, you're modeling this servant's heart. It's going to require service. All right, so that was all in-house. Let's talk about God's house for just a small amount of time. Serving in the church. Now, this building is not God's house. It's a beautiful building. It's not God's house. We as the people are God's house. We know that. Are you serving in the body of Christ? Are you finding a way to be able to use the gifts that God has given you? It really says something about what you value when you invest in the kingdom, right? It says something about you. It says something about what's important to you. I believe that all of us should be shouldering the kingdom responsibility together. You should have some, even if it's a small part, of shouldering this responsibility. We all have gifts. We all have abilities. I know for a fact that kids' ministry right now could use volunteers. You could serve, and it takes a servant's heart, but you could serve and you could minister to our kids. Verge uh, needs middle school leaders and other leaders. You could serve in that ministry. We need small group leaders and couples who will open up their home and take that step of leadership and, and lead a small group. And I saw a, a slide up there that said we need help with tech teams and and there's so many ways in which you could serve. And when you do so, you say something about what you value. And parents, I would say this. Uh, if you simply come to Bethel and attend, that tells your kids that you go to church, right? But if you come to Bethel and you roll up your sleeves and you use the gifts that God has given you, that teaches your kids that you are the church. So if you just come and attend, you go to church. If you do something, you get involved, you are being the church. You're showing your kids we are the church, Okay, so in-house, God's house, and out-house. So associations with this word out-house, I, I, good, because I, it's kind of what I intended, right? I think it helps my point here. So we, in our house, we should be serving, in the church, and then out there, we should serve. And the reason I think it's kind of funny is that this may very well be the most awkward, uncomfortable, and messy way of applying this sermon today. One of the greatest ways, though, that you could build kingdom culture in your home is by taking your family out of the cul-de-sac, and out into the hard places, taking them to places where you can see God minister to the neediest in our area. You could go to Gary and you could help out with the City Life Center. 
there's needs in Cedar Lake that you could help out with or in your neighborhood. You could take your family on a missions trip. And I promise you, that is one way to reduce the sense of entitlement. Take your kids on a missions trip. I remember all of us, my girls and I, all five of us, in Guadeloupe, which is a, a French-owned uh, island in the Caribbean area. Sounds really glamorous. It's beautiful. But we were in a, in a house that was blazing hot. It was so hot at night, no fans, sweating through all the sheets, cockroaches that were massive running along the hallways. I mean, I could hear the thing. And I was the big man. I got up. I was going to take care of the cockroach. I was scared. I kind of, it was, it, I mean, these are bugs I've never even seen. And, and I remember us being so uncomfortable. I mean, close to crying. I'm not exaggerating. I've been on a lot of trips. That was the hardest we've ever experienced, the, the, the difficulty. But you know what my kids talk about? They want to go back to Guadalupe. They want to serve. And when you come home from something like that, you go, wow, there's carpet and there's fans and, oh, you know, water is cold and all that stuff. It, it, it really helps us not to have a sense of entitlement when we serve, wherever you serve. But when you go out there and you go to the hard places, it is messy. It is scary. It is dangerous. But out there, we see God really, really grow us. So, amen. So where can you help your family grow in service? Maybe it's in your house. Maybe it's, you need to get involved with the church. You have gifts. You need to discover them. You need to find out. Uh, by the way, come to that Discover Bethel class on Saturday. It would be great to be able to find out about our church, get plugged in. Maybe it's uh, going out into the hard places. Sometimes you might be really good about serving, but you really struggle with it in the house verbal conversations, you know, showing respect to one another. Last thing I want to say to you this morning, and I speak to you from my youth minister's heart, being a youth pastor for 18 years before this. Uh, there's been some recent studies done on how kids can have a sticky faith, and that simply means that your kids will grow up and retain their faith and continue to walk with the Lord after they leave your home. And maybe some of you have seen those really like, abysmal statistics about uh, you know, how many kids walk away from Christ. Well, in, in these studies, one of the things that they come, they've come back to a number of times is that a family that serves together has a much higher rate of kids retaining their faith. Now, I don't know why that is other than it's God's design, but I've always told parents, serve with your kids. Find an area, go serve at a nursing home. Go, go wherever, but teach your kids that, that we live this out in real life. It's not just a thing we attend on Sunday. It's not just an event. It's our life. So if you're here with members of your family or whoever you're next, I want you to do this. I want you to turn to them and say, more of Christ, less of me. So just say, more of Christ, less of me. That's pretty simple, right? I mean, that's a simple equation. More of Christ, less of me. I want you to go home. I want you to write this somewhere. Write it on your chalkboard if you, you have one of those trendy chalkboards or whatever, okay? Put it on the refrigerator. Make a flag and fly it next to your W flag, okay? More of Christ, less of me. If you do so, it will be a huge win for your family, right? If we, if we serve one another, if we serve the body of Christ, if we serve the world and the community, this is going to make our families great. This is going to create kingdom culture in our homes. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Father God, we, we pause and we just thank you for your word. It is convicting. Lord, that we're called to be slaves and servants. God, we, we're Americans. We feel like we have so many rights, and yet, God, you tell us to willingly put those rights aside 
and to serve those that are around us. Lord, our family members. God, I pray for some families in here. Maybe there's some families that just, it's a poisonous atmosphere. And I pray that you would work and there would be more grace shown. There would be more Christ and less of me. Lord, perhaps we need to serve in the church. I pray for some people who, uh, for whatever reason, they haven't got involved yet, Lord. And I pray that they would serve here and that by humbly serving, you would grow them. They would become leaders. God, I pray for all of us to go out into our community and to serve humbly, to, to not think that anything is below us, God, especially in order to share the gospel of Christ with people. And God, I pray that this would transform our families. I pray that Jesus would become the center of our families. Maybe there's some revolutions that need to happen, and I pray for that today, God. And I pray that you'd use our families of Bethel in our neighborhoods, really to make a difference for your glory. More of you and less of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.